You're listening to What's Wrong With This Picture? Freaky films and why we freaking love them. Hi, I'm Lindsay McCullough. And I'm Gary Mulholland. And in each episode of What's Wrong With This Picture, we'll be looking at a movie we think is weird and wonderful. We sometimes do include the endings where it's key to what the film is, so please be prepared for that. So anyway, buckle up and join us on a journey to dangerous cities, suburbia and other fantasy worlds. It's going to be a wild ride. Today on What's Wrong With This Picture, we're looking at Mulholland Drive. Directed by David Lynch, of course, in 2001. Peter Deming was the cinematographer. And it stars Naomi Watts as both Betty and Diane. Laura Haring as both Rita and Camilla. Justin Theroux as Adam. And really, countless others, too many to name. Gary, tell us about the plot. Um, well, a little bit of context first, because I, I, um, before I, um, I, I get into the plot. So um, uh, first thing to say is that when we first started, um, we thought we're thinking about doing this podcast. Um, one of the things I came up with and uh, Lindsay kind of agreed at the time was um, no David Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> and my reasoning was all David Lynch's films are weird. So by their very nature, they're not weird because yeah. the only weird David Lynch film is the straight story yeah which is the only one that's not weird <laughs> um and uh, but then we kind of got into doing this and um we got to this uh, third season and we're coming up with things and and I said you know what yeah. Holland Drive and and Lindsay was kind of like yeah you know what yeah it's got to be done I think there's no weird party without Big Daddy Weird I mean he's he's just yeah. like he's missing if he's not here yeah. so we are going to do our best to do uh, Mulholland Drive a bit of justice today yeah we're going to give it a go um, so the plot um, <clears throat> uh, goes something like this um, there is a, a dark uh, brunette uh, beautiful brunette involved in an accident uh, she finds herself in the flat being stayed in by a uh, a very disingenuous, uh, bouncy, blonde woman um, uh, called Betty. Um, an adventure ensues uh, involve, involving gangsters, uh, horror movie hobos, um, little people who are the heads of the whole of Hollywood, um, and um, a director who is whose life is falling apart. Um, and things that don't really make any linear sense but are all part of a plot whereby a mystery uh, is being solved. And then Betty wakes up. <laughs> Excellent. So, Lindsay, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> In some ways, I'm sure I don't need to tell anyone what's wrong with this picture because certainly for the first two thirds of it, everything is is wrong. It has a very kind of dreamlike quality, as you allude to. So it starts off with jitterbugging couples and a mm. giant Naomi Watts big face. This isn't explained really until until almost at the yeah, end. So yeah. right from the start, you're like, what are these jitterbugging couples got to do with it? Yeah. And then, you know, Betty's face appears, Naomi Watts's face appears, much like Willow's face appears in the musical episode of... Uh, uh, of Buffy, you know, at the yeah, start, yeah, her, yeah. her face just this lovely, kind of shy, smiling, happy face appears, and Naomi Watts has, has one of those kind of faces. So the whole of the first two thirds of the film are scenes that don't connect, crisscrossing storylines, horror images, a general feeling of unease, a lack of logic, random cowboys po uh, popping up, 
other weird characters and it all seems too good to be true. <laughs> and guess what? <laughs> it is all good to be true and too good to be true. And I think, I guess that the weird of the film is the simple fact that when you first watch it, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will be people who've seen it, um, but we've very much chosen to not spoil the ending for, for those who haven't. But um, when you first watch the film, you're constantly going, what? What? Did you? <laughs> But where did they come from? Yeah. And where's that going? And who's that guy? And what's that got to do with the, the, whatever happened in the last scene? And and that is the experience of watching the film. Um, and the reason why it it's it's almost built into the film that the the reason why it was celebrated when it came out, but then has become more and more and more celebrated as the last twenty two years have gone along, is that. David Lynch was magnificent at pulling this all into something that created a mood which kept you entertained and intrigued and made you think and made you feel something when you walked out the cinema. But every time you watch it, a little more falls into place yeah. about what it actually all adds up to, which keeps making it more and more satisfying every time you come back to it. Um, so the weird is very much based in scenes like... Uh, at one point, we are, we, you know, because it's all about Hollywood and it's all about movie making and it's it's all about people who go to L.A. Uh, wanting to become stars. And at one point, um, there is a scene which is based around a, the, the producer of a movie going to see the head of the studios. Um, and um, he, he has to go down into this underground kind of basement uh, and, you know, finds himself behind a perspex screen as if he was talking to an animal. And, um, uh, and you know, the person behind it is a, a little person in a chair who he's talking to, trying to get answers from and who doesn't say a word to him. And um, not only is this completely unreal and a, a, a funny exaggeration of what people project onto the heads of Hollywood yeah. studios... But it's also a bit of a reference to his past in Twin Peaks and his use of a little person in that as well yeah. uh, to spook everybody. Yeah. And um, it, it, it's there's this constant film within a film. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, possibly more than one. But yeah, you're right. Michael J. Anderson, who plays Mr. Rock, the, uh, the person that you mentioned there, uh, is uh, has a kind of... In, in real life has a genetic bone disability. That means he kind of hasn't grown to his full size. He was in Twin Peaks. He's the backwards talking little person yep. in the in the scary yep. scenes. In this one, I don't know if you noticed, he's been given prosthetic limbs. So although he's ah. sitting down, he looks odd because his body is his body. That makes sense. And he's got long arms and he's got long legs, although he's sitting down. So that makes sense. <clears throat> it's it just another kind of discombobulation. And so, you know, as, as Gary said in the plot, the first two thirds turns out to be a dream and I don't think that's a spoiler for anything um you know we will we we will probably be slightly cagey about the last third of the movie but mm. it, that that notion of this is too good to be true and guess what it is as you say too good mm. to be true and it's not true and I I get the feeling with this this whole film another a weirdness for me <clears throat> I do find it very dreamlike I find the whole film very dreamlike yeah. in that I watched it and I've seen it countless times I saw it last week in preparation for this and already this morning, I was saying to you, "Did that happen, or did that happen?" Yeah, it has it has very lacy edges for me, like a dream, where you you're trying to grasp some of the detail of the film, yeah, not of the dream, but of the film, and it's just it's just slightly eluding you because the 
it, often in, in, in my dream, certainly, there's something that's happening and I know what the feeling feels like, but I don't know what the word for it is. Yeah. And I think Mulholland Drive is a bit like that for me. I can't always describe in words the feeling it gives me. And sometimes I, there's just bits I just do not remember after Absolutely. seeing it last I, week. I mean, David Lynch, he, 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 I think an awful lot of his films, you know, an awful lot of his films are dreamlike, but I don't think anybody's ever captured dream logic like yeah. him as a yeah. writer director because I think it's really important the fact that he writes his films as well um so he's pretty much he he writes entirely from a subjective point of view and he he interprets his own dreams um not necessarily I'm saying that Mulholland Drive is word for word some kind of dream that David Lynch has had don't misunderstand me but what I'm saying is he understands how his own dreams work and then works to get those on the sc- on the screen up on the piece of paper that is the screenplay, and then works to get them on the screen. Yeah. And exactly as you say, Lindsay, you, there was there was one point I only watched the film yesterday for the, for the you know the, the most recent time, and there was this moment where there was this blue box, and I was kind of looking and thinking, I've been watching this film. Have I seen that blue box before? <laughs> the, the, the camera's on the blue box like it's really significant. Did I just miss it? <laughs> and um, I probably did. And that's okay because it's exactly what you say, Lindsay. When I when I dream and, 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 and you know, that keeping in mind that whole thing that we only remember our dreams when we wake up. Yeah. In them, I can completely feel the feeling that I felt and I can interpret some of the events, but I can very rarely remember... Was I me? Yeah. Or was I some kind of different version of yeah. me? Um, there's often a place which is some kind of ma- shopping mall or, or building, but I can't put my finger on what kind yeah. of building exactly it is. Um, and then the events that happen within it, when I start to, you know, sort of actually piece them together in my mind, it really is sort of something that's like and then I was slapped by a fish and I turned into a carpet <laughs> slipper you know and 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 while it's happening to me I've been slapped by a fish and turning into a carpet slipper seemed perfectly yeah. reasonable and as soon as I wake up it's kind of like it's just I, yeah. I don't know I don't understand and I think Mulholland Drive captures that more exquisitely than any other yeah. film that I've I've seen yeah yeah because I think as well as the the dreamlike logic to it there's also there's an idealism to it so this is mm. this is the ideal life that betty mm. is mm. betty stroke she's later called diane and and, and diane is, is the person who she really is in in her dream betty is this idealized version of diane yes before things started to go wrong and that's the thing about the hollywood dream is that things start to go wrong and i, I think that that venn diagram of hollywood and dreams is is really key to this. Yeah. I, somebody said this. This isn't my thing, but you know how sometimes people say films are a love letter to Hollywood. This yeah. is a poison <laughs> pen to Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's there's something about so the Hollywood dream and what people think it's going to be like, and then it, what what it turns out to be like, obviously very different. But there's also something about how films themselves feed into what we expect yeah, that Hollywood definitely. dream to believe. And this is a very meta film, obviously about Hollywood. So. Uh, Sunset Boulevard is cited as a big, yeah. 
uh, influence, and of course it is. And we see right that right at the start. Yeah, it flashes we see, up the sign. And, uh, we see Hollywood Drive or uh, Mulholland Drive, and we see uh, Sunset Boulevard and another street I think called Franklin Franklin Avenue, and even Mulholland Drive. So I don't know if you remember in Chinatown, also a film yep. about Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, the character in that who's called Mulray in real life was called Mulholland. Of so, course, of course. Uh, yeah. So yeah. there's that. There's by the that way, thing. no relation, people. By the way, <laughs> yeah. <no>. Yes. <laughs> My great grandpappy <laughs> discovered oil in no. If no. only yeah. <laughs> you probably wouldn't be sitting here on a Sunday morning. I doubt You'd it. be on your yacht or something. I doubt it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's a film. Yeah, uh, one of the one of its themes, and uh, I think there are a few, but one of its themes is films are dreams, and certainly the the films that David Lynch grew up on, the the Hollywood movies, the the things that he and so many of us bought into and, and, and were delighted and charmed by the values and, and, and the world they presented, their dreams. Mm. And that doesn't mean that the emotions they provoke in us aren't real. Yeah. So Yeah, if you've ever had a nightmare, you can attest to that. You're yeah. frightened yeah. of something that's not real. And actually when you sometimes when you try yeah, sometimes it is like a monster's under the bed. But actually when you try and pin down exactly what it was in your dream that made you frightened I can't remember what it was. Either you can't remember what it was or it's something that's not frightening or it's something you can't define. It's yeah. like a verb that you've never heard of. Beyond, or something. beyond language, as yes. you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And so a film is definitely a language of its own. It it both feeds our dreams and reflects our dreams and and reality sometimes has more and and sometimes a film the great movies the movies that impact us the most have a greater truth than reality appears to mm. and i think that's part of what he's trying to say and so the reality at the end yeah it, it, it's the reality and it's a much darker yeah. thing than the dream that we've been watching for yeah. two thirds of the film. Yeah. But but it's but like the dream but the but but the dream has a truth underlying it that perhaps means more to Diane than her reality does. Yes, I th- I think that's true. And What's what's really clever about the film? I mean, it's no it's no news to anyone that David Lynch is going to write and make a clever film, and this is rightly I think acknowledged as a as a masterpiece, as a yeah. classic. Yeah, it, it it's incredibly clever because I mentioned that the the dream part of it, and as I mentioned, this is like two thirds of the movie probably mm. is, the, is mm. the dream, so it goes on for a while. Um, the 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 dream part of it is the idealized version of of Betty that Diane wants to see in yeah. herself. But you can't. It can't help. But there's there's darkness seeping through it, yes. like yes. like smoke under a door. Yes, she can't keep that fire out because it's her subconscious. She can't keep that fire out. So we've got a very um, kind of sinister cowboy. We've got yeah. sinister gangsters. We've got uh, somebody who comes to her door who's like a I don't know, like a a, a seer or a some kind of mystic who comes to the door and says, there's trouble here and somebody's in trouble here. And so all these kind of augers and warnings that her subconscious is, is giving her. There's a there's a scene in a diner where a guy sees something very, very scary behind the back of the diner. And everything we see in the dream appears in the real life part in the end. Yeah. Sometimes in passing, yeah. sometimes not not at all sinister. 
sometimes with a with a totally different meaning, but it's there. And so her dream is like infected by all these real life Absolutely. things, and it does get darker and darker as it as it as it goes on. So right at the start, we see this kind of uh, big face willow willow type face, as I mentioned, if if you're familiar with the um, the Buffy show, and then even what happens to to Betty. What happens to Rita, who's the mm. dark-haired um, person that, that you mentioned who's in the accident and who, by the way, takes her name from a Rita Hayworth poster. Yes. So these, even these names, Betty and Rita, they're very kind of old Hollywood. Yes. There's another link with old Hollywood in that the landlady in, in the dream sequence of the apartment block uh, is Coco and she's played by Anne Miller, who was yeah. her golden age of Hollywood yes. dancer, hoofer. She was in Easter Parade. She was in On the Town. Um I would have loved to have seen her dance, actually, but she, yeah. <laughs> she looks maybe slightly too elderly. Yeah. Slightly too elderly for that. Yeah, and also all of these things, as you quite rightly say, Lindsay, where, where they all turn up later in the film. And, and so two, two things about it that you kind of find yourself thinking about afterwards. One is, oh, okay, so what, what's happened is there is one event, and again, trying to avoid a spoiler, there is one event that has tipped Diane more over the edge than anything else. And all of these characters that have come in and out of what now appears to be a dream were passing yeah. in this event. Yeah. That, or, almost all of them. Yeah. And the people that seemed to have a major impact on her life adventure uh, are, in fact, people that were just walking out of a door yeah. and caught her eye. And that that's kind of what the subconscious does yeah and how it processes information and pushes them out in dreams and the second thing is it's you know this whole thing of it's is it a poison pen to hollywood is it a love letter to hollywood um all of these characters coming in and out of the film and you know doing what you were saying you know oh portents of evil and whatever they're film gangsters yeah they're a film mystic yeah film they're cowboys a, there's a film cowboy there's a film jump scare you know, um, a film horror motif and a jump scare. At the diner? Is yes, that the one you're behind the of? diner. Yeah. You know, they're movie tropes. Yeah. They're all movie tropes. Yeah. And it's kind of like everything is... There's a fantastic line that... Um, and we'll come back to the scene, I hope, because I hope it's one of the scenes we discuss. But there's a fantastic line uh, said by a director who is kind of portrayed in this scene as, as quite a pretentious director who doesn't really know what he's talking about and I've got to try and find the actual uh, proper line um, or I'll try and pray it um, if I can't find it on my notes but he's giving um, uh, you know sort of instructions for for Betty uh, to do her audition and he says um, something like don't play it for real until it gets real yeah and that is exactly what Mulholland Drive does yeah everybody is playing a trope a stereotype, yeah. an exaggeration. They're too happy. They're too sad. They're too horrible. They're too. They're playing movie. Yeah. Until we find out who Diane really is. Yes. And then they're playing it for real. Yeah. And that's really good, actually. I hadn't made that connection, but that's really good. And Naomi Watts, in particular, her perform. I mean, good lord, she's fantastic in this film. I, I, I can't. I mean, it's one of the, you know, finest. I, I, I think so. I think film so. Performances. A lot, a lot depends on her. A lot depends on us believing her as Betty. Yeah, absolutely. You yeah. believe her as Betty, and, and then, then really believing her as Diane. Yeah, and 
I think, you know, obviously some of it is makeup. Some of it, I think, is she's wearing, because, uh, you know, Naomi Watts, I don't know if she still does, in those days she had wonky teeth. Yeah. You know, she was, yeah, kind, yeah, of, yeah. She was kind of alone amongst kind of uh, Hollywood actresses for having quite wonky teeth. Mm. And at the start, Betty doesn't. Betty has kind of straight white teeth, so I guess yeah, it's some kind yeah. of flipper, as they call it on Drag Race, some kind of fake teeth thing. Yeah. And then at the end, she's got Diane has has Naomi Watts' own wonky teeth, and so there is something about the makeup, and there is something about yes. her appearance. But absolutely, it's it's her performance. And if you don't buy her as Betty, and you don't buy her as Diane, then that film, great though it is, and interesting though it would be to look at, I don't think it. I don't think it stacks up. No, I think I think that there's a there are so many films that um, and a few that we end up talking about, Lindsay, which hinge on a great dinner party scene. Yeah. Uh, again. Try not to do a spoiler, but I think this film, to some extent, hinges on a great dinner yeah. party scene, and her playing in that scene is 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 heartbreaking and scary. Yeah. Um. You you watching a real suddenly after watching a dream version of a person, you are watching a real person break down. Yeah. And good God, she nails it. Yeah, absolutely. No, she's amazing throughout. A lot of herring. I would say is good in the dream section and perhaps I mean her character isn't maybe as fleshed out in the in the mm. real life section at the end and, and I, I don't think she quite matches Naomi Watts in terms of intensity. But do you know Elna Haring, uh, she's actually Countess von Bismarck. <laughs> she married she married like wow. I don't know the, the Count of Bismarck uh, for a couple of years and so she, wow. they're, they're divorced now but she gets to retain the title of Countess von Bismarck. And, and stranger than fiction. Yeah, How very absolutely. David Lynch. I know. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been great if she'd just actually been called in the film The Countess von Bismarck? <laughs> I think I I've don't got even, that right. even he would have thought of that. Yeah, yeah. I might need to check it as Bismarck, but I think You it know is. who she really reminds me of? And in, in some ways, I agree. She, she, you know, Naomi Watts is a powerhouse and, and she isn't. Um, but she. She is there to have a certain kind of beauty, which when her face fills a frame, sometimes your breath is taken away. It's old Hollywood beauty, it's isn't Ava it? It's Ava Gardner. Yeah, it's old Hollywood glamour. It's, yeah. And I think she's, it's Ava Gardner, not Rita Hayworth, mm-hmm. despite the, the Rita Hayworth recipe. I think, I think she reminds me so much of Ava Gardner. And Ava Gardner is a brilliant example of someone who is wonderful in a few films because yeah. of how extraordinary she looks rather than... The acting talent of, say, a Barbara Stanwyck yeah, or, or a yeah. Jane Crawford or yeah. you know or a Betty Davis. It, it, it's she's iconic, yes, rather than a great actress. There's one line, isn't it, that no, uh, Naomi Watts' character says about you know, oh, oh, obviously I prefer to be a great actress than a movie star, yeah. but for some people they're both, yeah, <laughs> and that's what I hope to yeah, achieve, yeah, and you know. Um, uh, <laughs> I think we can run off our, our list of people who we think are great actors and great movie stars. Ava Gardner was a great movie star, mm-hmm. and and I think um, I think she plays in this film a, a great movie star as opposed to a great actress, and she is in this film that uh, has a movie star presence, which is not about the same kind of acting level. Of Naomi Watts, I think I would. I think I would concur. I mean, they're they're a nice visual. They really are. I'm, I'm conscious, actually, a lot of the films that we're going to be doing in this season, mm. they feature two powerhouse I know. female performers. I know at their heart. We've 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 gone quite women centric. So hurrah! <laughs> <laughs> Down with boys. Well, yeah, I was going. Yeah, I was going through. I mean, it's amazing you picked that up because we we picked the films and we mm. you know we sat and chatted it through and then, and then it was only yesterday as i was watching Mulholland Drive that i suddenly went through the list of films and i'm not going to go through them but 
they nearly all hinged on, most of them hinge on a double, a female double act at its centre, and all of them hinge on two people who yeah. dominate the whole film. Yes, absolutely, that's true, that's true. We're Very all seeing odd. that, we're all seeing that kind of piece. But there's a, there's a point where... Betty says to Rita. So Rita has amnesia, which is such yeah, an old Hollywood, yeah, Hollywood thing, trope. isn't it? Uh, yeah, that, that, that amnesia that is very handy yeah. and very useful. Anyway, uh, Betty says to Rita at some point when Betty is very keen to, let's get to the bottom of who you are and what this mystery is and why you were in that accident and what happened with the car. And um, she says, it'll be just like in the movies. We'll pretend to be someone else. Yeah. So just like in the all movies. the way through, all the way through, and I have, yeah, it's it's just um, this is this is so knitted all the way through, and it really under yeah. underlines what you were saying earlier. Actually, I can't really add better to that. Dreams are movies. Movies are dreams. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, a visual tour de force, but the screenplay, yeah, is unbelievable. It's like, how do you, for me, how do you keep track of that? I and just don't. I don't know. know. It's it's color coding or like literally like know. that scene in It's Always Sunny where Charlie's got like the, <laughs> the bits of string point, pointing different places and uh, yeah, yeah. yeah I, it, it's it, it it really is. I don't think I, you know. I don't think I've realised until the last few years. You know. I think I un- almost underestimated David Lynch, and and I've been a David Lynch fan since yeah. I, I saw a Razorhead. This is a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but I think I underrated him because when I, I take apart Mulholland Drive and, and look at the screenplay for before he even points a camera at anyone, I, I'm just thinking I don't understand how he's come up with this screenplay and made it work. It should just be a bunch of inco. It should just be an incoherent mess. Yeah. And it's not. It ties in together perfectly yeah. and and at the very end it all kind of crushes it's, it's almost like the world collapses and all of it floods in the entire two and a half hours you've just sat there just all floods in yeah. and you kind of go oh that and it's almost like you can barely keep up with all the the kind of and that oh yes and that and that and that and oh now i understand yeah. and and it's kind of like wow yeah. What a piece of I'm writing. I'm sure there are people who get to the end, and I'm sure I was one of them. Like I say, I have seen this film several times now. And you, and you get to the end, and, and it's kind of like, what? Wait, what? Though? But? Yeah. What? And definitely. I think. First time for it's me, not, definitely. It's not a film that just invites or welcomes a second viewing. It kind of demands. Yeah. It demands several viewings, I think. Yes. To actually, if if making sense of the plot is what you're into in a film, and not everybody is you know people, yeah, people like films yeah. for different reasons if you're like me and you want to get to the bottom of things i think two three four viewings yeah over the years to to try and kind of fit that jigsaw 100 agreed i mean this was the third time i've seen it and i enjoyed it way more than the second time and the second time i enjoyed it way more than the first yeah. time because i understood it more and i still um, i'm very confident that i will watch it in two years time and i will enjoy it even more and i'll understand a bit more than the last time Every layer you unfold opens up another layer, mm. and 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 it's it's more profound than the last layer. Absolutely, absolutely. How do you do that? So, what are what are some of your favourite scenes? Then? I think right. Okay, so let's go with number one. 
I think my favourite scene in the entire movie is Club Silencio. Um, Good one. <laughs> and the reason why it's my favourite scene is because I've now seen the film three times and every single time I burst into tears. I, I can't give it anything a bigger compliment than that. In a film which is can sometimes feel like say it can sometimes feel like an intellectual exercise but i think that's very unfair on it. it it's it's not a film that is sentimental in any way um or or is desperately trying to punch your fields buttons um for this scene to suddenly come along he's he, he he's done it a few times in in his work hasn't he where the only the only thing that the only thing that works. The the great place he can go to is a torch song. And the torch song is even better if it's not actually being sung. Yeah. It's being mimed. Yeah. Lip syncing. That, that is that is an incredible scene. And so it's the, the singer is Rebecca Del Rio. Yeah. I think her name yeah. is. And Which is a drag name, isn't yeah, it? If yeah. ever there was one. Yeah. Well, yeah. And her sister Bianca. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um and and the song for anybody who hasn't seen it is uh, Roy Orbison's "Crying," sung yeah. sung in Spanish, sung a cappella, oh. and it's and it's an incredible Chills. richness. And I, I think uh, I read that David Lynch saw Rebecca Del Rio kind of singing that, mm. and just kind of filed it away and thought, "I'll use that at some point," and and used it here to immense effect. So, uh, is it Diane at this point? No, is it still Betty and Rita at this point? I think they're just Betty. It, it, it's it's the moment, isn't it, that the dream it's just before the dream crashes crashes to an end so yeah. they are still betty and rita but they're not just. The, they're not the innocent betty and rita that they were at the no. start of the dream and reality is seeping in yeah they go to see this and as you say it's an amazing performance it looks like it's sung mm. it looks like it's sung mm. but then rebecca del rio kind of faints in the middle and the song does not stop and, and it's oh, astounding it's huge uh, the woman sitting on the balcony who doesn't yeah, have any job to do except right at the end. But, but I'm not going to say any more than that. And is she is she the mystic? Is she the one who was the mystic? I don't think so. Okay. But wouldn't it well, be great if we watched it the fourth time? I and know, and found like, Hang out. on, she's the mystic. <laughs> uh, that'd be great. Um, and and the whole thing, uh, the, this whole uh, the setting, which is oh, you know, uh, everybody calls it oh, it's Club Silencio. Club Silencio. Well, Club Silencio looks very much like a theatre to me. Uh, I don't think it's a club at all. It's a theatre that happens to be open at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the fact that there are people, a few people, they're almost like, they look like the kind of people that are sitting around watching for a, for, a, a sort of porn film to start in a porn cinema. Uh, kind of a bit bored, kind of a bit lonely, kind of whatever. Um, and then they disappear once, once, and mm -hmm. it's only about Betty and Rita and the singer. Uh, and of course, before that, the MC And... This fantastic kind of speech about the fact that everything is fake. Yeah. And it's it's almost David Lynch going, right, I am saying to you, every emotion that I am going for here is an absolute fake mm. and I'm still going to break your heart. And he does. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah. oh, man, that is tour de force stuff. Yeah. That's right. I hadn't really thought of that. But of course, yes, the singing sounds real, but the singing is fake. And yeah. you're right. <laughs> I'm really glad we're having this conversation because I'm getting an even kind of more and more. I'm well, I'm, I'm, what's I'm, in I'm, it. yeah, I, I, I mean, I think this is one of the wonderful things about the film, isn't it? And it's why people talk about it. 
It's because, endlessly yeah. discussed and mythologised, isn't it? Because every subject, but it, but it can it can cope with it. it the yeah. weight of that, the weight of that endless mythology, does not tip it over. No, and every person's got a slightly different take and get something out of it because it's so subjective. Because yeah. what are, what is more subjective than dreams? So it, it it every time you talk about it to someone else who's really into the film, they say something and you go, "Oh my god, I never thought of that. That's brilliant." And and uh, uh, yeah, it bears that weight. What's your favorite scene, Lindsay? Well, I really like this is a very odd scene. This is when Diane is Diane. Yeah. And things are coming to a head. Yeah. Right at the start, Betty has come off a plane and she's met this older couple on the plane who are very into her. Oh, Betty, it's been lovely to meet you. You're so nice. You're such a nice person. That's a clue right from the start. Yeah. But actually, yeah. maybe this is not how Diane yeah. really is. Yeah. Um, but these these people reappear in a sequence mm. right before the end as tiny little people kind of dogging her reality, dogging her dreams or uh, some kind of flashback to how she was or 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 who who are these people in real life are they her parents i think they are i think they are i think that's who they are um i read uh, i read somewhere you know theories 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 mm. and somebody else theorized maybe you know the, the people who judged the jitterbugging contest that you mm. see at the beginning but that what, was supposedly her launch to to her dreams what's the meaning in that there's no that, I, that, I don't that, think there's so. no meaning in that if that's the case i think they're mum and dad yeah I think they're mum and dad, and I think I think it it, it it makes it all the more heartbreaking because her dream is telling you what she wanted mum and dad to think of her. That she's this wonderful, lovely, amazing yeah. girl who's their princess and just yeah. oh whatever. And in fact, that that they're, they're just a Freudian nightmare. Yeah. Um, whatever her relationship was with yeah. him, and you don't get the backstory. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go for parents. Um, and I I agree it. It's really chilling. And it's chilling, but also when they become kind of little stop motion, it's just like, what the fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck, what's going on? That didn't happen before. Yeah. Um, and this is, uh, let's be clear, this is outside of the dream world. Yeah. This is, this this is, is in her reality. This is in her reality. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's how fractured her, her psyche has become, uh, yeah. is that she sees these little, little people. I mean, it's very much like the Bride of Frankenstein. I don't know if you remember that. They've got tiny little people that... The scientist has grown in test tubes. Yeah, 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 They're very similar to that. So, I mean, you know, David Lynch knows so much about Hollywood history. I'd be astonished if that wasn't. I'm astonished if he doesn't know James Whale. Yeah, I'd be astonished if he doesn't know James Whale and Bride of Frankenstein. I would be astonished. So, yeah, good one. Shall we talk the audition scene? Because I think, yeah, in terms of it's a film within a film. This is. This is my favourite bit um, because it's like a mini short movie it, it, and yet it absolutely fits with the rest. Um, so Betty, as she is at this mm. point, um, turns up for an audition. The The producer is this lovely, kindly old guy who makes her feel really good and everybody in the room is encouraging and etc. And, and except for the director who's a bit kind of pretentious and sort of whatever but the room is too small and everybody's just a bit too fake and immediately it has that feeling of unreality and of course the the guy that she's got to play this sort of love scene although it's you know it's it's a, a love gone wrong scene 
Or an abuse scene because of the age difference. Or an abuse scene is a way, way older guy. And he has this kind of, he he isn't just a guy playing a creepy character. He's creepy. And it's it's that Hollywood type of creepy where the, the teeth are too white and and that sort of arrogance of like, because I'm Hollywood and I have really white teeth, um, you know, actually young women do find me irresistible and, and everybody thinks I'm just fantastic. And that's what makes him creepy. Mm. And um, so basically at first she's looking really freaked out and she starts to play the scene. And at first she's kind of like, he's he's kind of getting close to her and whatever. And she's kind of showing repulsion on her face. And then as they start to play out the scene, she decides to turn the table almost and actually places his hand on her ass and starts to kiss him and starts to play the scene with this really overt sexuality. And to your amazement in front of your eyes, the scene becomes absolutely charged with chemistry. And, and, and love. Yeah. Uh, so it's not it's not just sexy, and I think Naomi Watts does incredibly incredible, incredible business here. But because yeah, so she's she's naive Betty. She's doing the kind of oh yeah, you know, and the same words are said the second time, and it's night and day. Actually, it's day and night. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this is and this night. is so sexy, but it's also kind of love lost or lo- a, a kind of an all encompassing love of which sex is a big part. Yeah. But it's love. And you're getting this in like a two-minute scene. It's And it's so incredible. It's so incredible. And big up to... Do you remember the name of the actor? I don't know. I don't know his name. Isn't it? Oh. I mean, it's a Apologies, cast... Apologies, mate. It's a, it's a cast of thousands, but he is... He is... Fantastic. He is great in it. And, and as you say, this creepiness melts away and this, this vulnerability... Yeah. It doesn't come from him. It comes from her. Yeah. She gives him this vulnerability. Um. Yeah, so uh, it, it's... It, it's a brilliant scene and... And it just feels, it feels like, I don't know if he's showing off um, almost, but that the, he, he suddenly has decided to make a short film about the audition process, mm-hmm. um, about someone doing a really good audition. And, and it's got poignancy and it's got power and it, it starts off creeping you out. And, but all the time it's letting you know this is not reality. Uh, at the same time as really tugging your emotions. And that's the trick he's trying to play with you through the whole film. This is fake. This is fake. This is fake. Why are your feelings real? <laughs> that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And it, uh, the other thing about that scene is this is in Betty's head. This is mm. in Diane's head. This is what she imagines. This is how she imagines herself as a great actress, is that she yeah. can take... This yeah. hackneyed script that could be one thing, but actually she's made it something else. And the whole other audition process, where the director Justin Justin Theroux is looking for a girl, and it could it could be Betty, but yeah. in fact the mafia or the mob or, or whatever are saying this is the girl, this is the girl, this is the girl that you've got to cast. And and so for Betty, it's kind of like I am a great actress. For Diana, I should say yeah. I am a great actress. I should be getting these roles but in fact there's all these kind of background shadow, shadowy exactly. players that are standing exactly. in my way exactly and it's not my fault if i'm not exactly. yet a big star exactly that is spot on what that whole thing is about and and, and what you it's one of the key parts of her narrative is 
I failed and it wasn't me. Yeah. It was forces beyond my control. Yeah. It's not my lack of talent. Yeah. Um, and th- that's heartbreaking. Yeah. And uh, the use of that phrase, this is a girl, which is yeah. key to really to what happens in the end as well. But I mean, there's we've made it sound very poor face and that there is one, I guess, humorous, humorous bit in it, which is uh, in the dream sequence, there's a kind of out of, out of context little scene about a contract killer who's going to kill somebody in an office and it all kind of goes wrong. So he kills this person in the office, the gun goes off again, goes through a wall, shoots another woman who's screaming. Mm. He has to go and get this screaming woman and and kill her because like she's been shot, although she thinks she's been stung by a bee. Somebody, a cleaner with a hoover, sees him. He then has to kill the cleaner with a hoover. The hoover won't stop hoovering, so he shoots the hoover. And it's it's this real kind and of... And he sets off all the alarms. He sets off all the alarms while he's trying to... While he's trying to so it's, and, it's this, and it's this funny little scene that does not make sense until much later. And even then... Even then, it's... Even then, you, you kind of think, okay, so what does this mean? Why is this in Betty's dream? And I think yeah. it does become clear for Diane why it's in Betty's dream at some point. Kind of. Kind, kind of. of. Okay, I, I, don't, I don't think we can say too much about no, that because we're going to no, give it. No, away. no, no, no. Because yeah, exactly. Yes, um, I love that scene. I absolutely love that scene. I think it's almost like I don't know if he's uh, David Lynch by this time was a fan of the Coen Brothers. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's not. It's, it's not, not unlike, is it? it? It's like a Coen Brothers tribute, like all those bungled crimes in their early movies. Yeah, five minute short movie, like like a silent comedy. Yeah. Like Cohen Brothers make Buster Keaton, or Buster Keaton makes so yeah. the Cohen Brothers. Like, what's the worst crime you could commit? I just thought, you know, if it is like this ode to old old Hollywood in 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 some ways, you know, when you used to go to the cinema, I mean, before before you and I were, were, mm. were kind of going to the cinema, but you'd get a main feature and you'd get a B feature <laughs> and you'd get a cartoon and you'd get a newsreel. It's like David Lynch has put these all in Mulholland Drive. You get everything exactly. All you've, in you've one. got every uh, B genre. That yeah. without a shadow of a doubt, you've got every B genre. You know, it, it's, you know, the, the the detectives that turn up and, the, and just stand there looking like hard-boiled detectives. Yeah. And they never do anything, but, you, know. But, you know. And one of them is Robert Forster. Forster, you know. Who who just has his, had his kind of re-emergence in, in, in Jackie, Jackie Brown. Brown. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's a big name again. And, you know, he's, he's putting a great performance in Jackie Brown, plaudits all round. Two years later, or how many years, two, three years later, he's in this... For 30 seconds <laughs> and then never reappears. No. And it's like, so these are the detectives who are maybe looking into the disappearance of what happened in this car crash and there was a woman there and where's the mm. woman gone? And that, of course, turns out to be Rita. And you think, all right, this is going to be a main strand of this film. They're, yeah. they're going to be working on the investigation at the same time. But no. No. They're just never in it again. No. Nope. And you, so you, you've got the, the B-movie gangsters, you've got B-movie police detectives, you know, hardball detectives, you've got B-movie uh, cowboy and westerns, and we'll get back to the cowboy, I hope, because it's such a great scene. Um, we've got a sort of, uh, I don't know, and maybe the 1A movie thing is the central romance, you could argue, um, but you could argue that because it's a lesbian romance, there's a kind of exploitation thing yeah, to it. So it's yeah. B movie exploitation, sex exploitation, um, and you've got B movie horror. Um, and with you were mentioning, with making it sound po faced, 
and there's no comedy in it. There's so much comedy in it. And can we talk about the conference between the gangsters and the director and the producer? Because that is hilarious. Um, so basically, he, the, the, the director, Adam, um, who plays a much bigger part in this film, by the way, than we're probably yeah, giving yeah, him credit yeah. for. And, and Justin Theroux is really, really good. Um, but he's he's got this word that he's supposed to cast, you know, and he turns up to this conference and he's, he's got to cast this girl. Um, and um, he's there, you know, being the tough Tyro director. Nobody tells me what to do. And uh, he's got um, two men that are quite purely gangsters sitting opposite him and one is played by uh, Dan Hedaya who is always just great value and is just essentially looking like a psycho just staring at him with a look of wild-eyed fury and uh, and this other guy who is like as close as Brando in The the Godfather you could probably get without actually putting some wool in his Mm. mouth and, and whatever and all he says is this is the girl and I'm saying it at that level because he's saying it. So yeah, yeah. Everybody's got what? <laughs> and this scene is absolute genius. It, it's a brilliant parody of movie gangsters. Yeah. Um, and and finally, you know, Dan Hedaya just ends up screaming and he doesn't even say anything. He's just screaming. And it's you're just going back from the screen going, what the hell? And it, it, it's... It's a mixture of really, really malevolent violence and absolute caricature. And, yeah. and, and it's, it's superb. It is. It is great. I think we could talk about this all day. We but could. I, but I wonder if maybe we should... Bring wrap it, it up? We should, we should maybe wrap it up. Could I, I, could I just mention, um, just very quickly then, the cowboy scene, uh, Justin Theroux's uh, director, Adam, go, has to go out and meet this cowboy. Um, and... And this again, I think it's hilarious because the cowboy is doing what a cowboy might do and doing this kind of enigmatic threatening, and he's kind of just just through just keeps going, uh, yeah, whatever, um, what <laughs> doesn't <laughs> yeah, quite under, doesn't quite understand what he's getting threatened with. I think that's true. The, the guy genius. who played the cowboy, unfortunately, I didn't I didn't write down his name. I don't know if he did. Uh, I can't no, remember his name. I didn't. But um, uh, he's he's not a professional actor, which probably is not a shock. I think uh, you know, you imagine that David Lynch's circle of friends is just like oddballs and yeah. you know sleepy yeah. people who wear dressing gowns and any any number of like Count von Bismarcks and whatever and, and, and like, like obscure blues records and and girl group records yeah, from yeah. the sixties. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but um, so this 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 cowboy guy, not not a professional actor, and he could not get his lines, and ah. Justin Theroux had to hold up like um, memory oh, boards across from him just so brilliant. that he could he could he could get the lines. Brilliant. And I was just going to say that the, the diner, it's become in, in horror circles, despite the fact that Mulholland Drive is not a horror film, uh, it's seen as an iconic jump scare. How to deliver. It's mm. almost like David Lynch going, want to see, I, I don't make horror films. Yeah. Want to see if I could. <laughs> yeah. And he just does a thing. There's two people talking to diner. One of them says, I'm having these nightmares. I've come to this diner and I want you to come with me because um, I'm scared of something behind the court, around the corner. Um, okay, let's do it. He walks around the corner. The way this is shot, the expressions on their faces, um, you know, you are, the way the music rumbles, Angelo Badiamenti's music, by the way, is bloody marvellous all the way through. Of course. And, and you're really kind of going, I'm scared. I don't know what I'm scared. Why am I scared? But I, you're sitting there mm. and you're feeling scared. And then he gets, gets and, and all that happens is a homeless man, particularly, you know, with a lot of makeup and, and not looking great, but a homeless man pops his head around the corner 
and you jump, you fall mm. off your seat. And it's so scary to, to the character that has the nightmare that he collapses yeah. uh, and faints. It's And of course, at the end, it's not a homeless man. And it's not a homeless man. And that's that's interesting as well because there are oh god we really must stop actually but there's, yeah. there's <laughs> lots of time time skipping in this as you would expect in a dream mm. you know you turn yep. a corner and it's three days later or you turn a corner and you're you're someone else and there are things that happen in the dream that actually Diane should not be able to know yeah and yet, yeah and yet and yet she does and there's another scene where Diane at this point is masturbating yeah and. Yeah. The phone rings That's and weird. the phone rings and interrupts her. And when she stands up to answer the phone, she's wearing different clothes. Yes, uh, yeah, beautiful. And that beautiful happens outside of the dream time. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, when we when we come <laughs> yeah. to talk about like points for weirdness, let's let's yeah. move on to that. So we always like to give a score yes, for quality and the score for weirdness and. What shall we choose? What emblem yeah. shall we what, choose? What, what, blue, key. blue keys. Yeah, got to be blue keys, isn't it? What, Lindsay, you go first. Well, uh, blue keys for quality. You can tell that you know we we, yeah. we adore this film. I, I think it is it a ten for me. Oh yeah, probably. Yeah, nine or ten, probably. Now weirdness. Here was what was here is what yeah. was in my head. If we saw a film, and at one point it's like all of that was a dream, we'd think that's a cop out. Yeah. If all the weirdness happens in the dream, is this really a weird film? <laughs> so funny. I was going down the same route oh, really? this morning. Go on, but, go on. But having said that, there is some weirdness that's, that's not in the dream. And the whole notion of the film is so weird. I feel like it would just be so iconoclastic to claim that this was not a weird film and that, you know, the weirdness was, was confined to the dream sequence because I don't think that's that's true at all. The whole feel of the film, the whole feel of the film is weird and it it's it's as weird in the last third as it is in the two thirds, almost yeah. as weird in the last yeah. third. So yeah, I'm going to give it nine for weirdness and nine for quality. I think I'm going to give it ten for quality. And it's so brilliant that you you've done that. Heading back to what I was saying at the beginning about the fact that at first I didn't want to do any David Lynch films because they're all weird. Um, I think that what David Lynch does in this film and does in so many of his best films is he creates his own universe with its own rules. And he does this so well in Mulholland Drive that nothing that happens in it is weird. So despite the fact that we've done this and I've loved every second of talking about it, I'm going to give it zero for weird. Oh, you iconoclast. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll buy it. I, 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 yeah. I, I, I... It's, I, it's either the weird, you know, it's either 10 for weird. Yeah. It's the weirdest film ever. Or it's not weird at all because it, it, yeah. is, it's, it operates in a dream universe that is of David Lynch's own making. He's not walking outside it. That's why it's, it's his best film. It's completely coherent. Mm. Mm. Yeah. All right. I'll buy that, yeah. for, a, I'll buy that for a dollar. Lovely. But if if there's anybody out there who hasn't seen Mulholland Drive, I hope we've persuaded you that it's worth not just the initial two and a half hours that it will take you to watch it. And honestly, you don't feel that time at all because you're so engrossed nope, in it. You don't. But watch it two or three times. <laughs> Spend <laughs> a least. whole day. Spend a whole day watching this film, and it will uh, pay dividends. It will enrich your life. It um, certainly will. Till next time. time. 
What's Wrong With This Picture is brought to you by Lindsay McCulloch and Gary Mulholland and is recorded by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. Music composed and performed by Russ Keffert. Thank you.